Hello and welcome to Guardian Daily on Thursday the 26th of November. I'm Esther Adley. It's been a bumper week for the banks. Not only can they carry on charging big fees for overdrafts, now a new report says bankers who are paid more than a million pounds a year can keep their identity secret. We hear from their customers. I think we are giving them enough business in terms of saving and uh, borrowing money from them. I think the profit from those is enough. There's no scientific evidence that it works, so why do so many people believe in homeopathy? I think it's sad that the public are now having to realise that in fact what should be a trustworthy resource for information on healthcare is in fact somebody who is, as a business person, selling them sugar pills. We'll hear from the residents of Workington in Cumbria, whose town has been cut in half by floods. Why does a new exhibition about human identity feature one of these? This is uh, the diary chair from the diary room uh, from the uh, Big Brother programme. And Annie Lennox talks religion, celebrity and Africa. Guardian Daily from guardian.co.uk But first the news and a look at the papers with Bill Overton. Banks should be made to say how many of their staff are paid more than a million pounds a year. That's the recommendation of a government report by Sir David Walker. But he doesn't think the lucky winners should have to be named as they are in the US. Top staff should also be made to take half of any bonuses in long-term incentives like shares, argues the report. The Labour government would like to move tens of thousands of civil servants out of London to save costs. This is in a government plan leaked to The Guardian called the Smarter Government Review. It also proposes to cut the number of top mandarins and the number of quangos. The former head of MI6 says the government's mishandled the campaign in Afghanistan. Sir Richard Dearlove was head of the Secret Intelligence Service when British troops first went into the country eight years ago. He says the Treasury then squeezed the budget for the military and left the armed forces under-resourced. More financial news from the Middle East. The government investment company in Dubai can't pay its debts and has asked for six months' delay. Dubai has expanded massively over the past decade but has now been badly hit by the recession. In India, the city of Mumbai is marking a year since the massacre of 166 people by terrorists. The police marched through the city in a show of strength while residents left messages of remembrance outside places where people were killed. Football and Chelsea go through to the knockout stages of the Champions League after beating Porto 1-0. Manchester United also go through but they lost at home to Besiktas, also 1-0. That story gets mileage on the sports pages of the morning papers. Besiktas Embarrass United's youngsters is our headline, while The Telegraph says United's kids were taught a lesson. It's the club's first defeat in 18 home games, says The Times, claiming Ferguson is left to sweat. Our front page splash reads, Revealed Labour's plan to dismantle Whitehall. The Financial Times goes with Dubai debt shock, but it also publishes the report on banking, telling companies they must disclose all pay over a million pounds. And it admits there was a blow to bank customers when the Supreme Court ruled banks could charge penalties for for overdrafts. The Times calls that a double victory for the banks on bonuses and charges. The Sun is more crisp, £2 billion win for utter bankers. The Telegraph focuses on yesterday's report by the Chief Inspector of Constabulary with a headline that policing has lost its way in target culture. The Mail goes for another political story that the Lib Dems uh, accused the Prime Minister of allowing government departments not to release secret documents to the Iraq inquiry. The paper calls it an insult to the dead. Its picture story shows singer Alicia Dixon. She's dressed in her party finest, but she's rejected and showing her surprise after failing to get into a London nightclub. The Express captions it all, Strictly no admittance. There's more news and sport at guardian.co.uk.
how do we stop the banks getting themselves and the rest of us into trouble again? A new report out today from former investment bank boss Sir David Walker was meant to set out the rules for how banks organise themselves and how much they pay themselves. I asked The Guardian's head of business, Dan Roberts, and Jill Inslee, who heads up our consumer team, what it decided. It's basically a huge government report into um, how to stop the banks blowing themselves up again. And it's been looking very closely at the way banks are run and the way their boards of directors operate. And it's concluded that mainly the chairman of banks need to act, have, be much tougher in future. It's arguing that, uh, that they ought to sort of countermand their, their chief executives if they go off and do foolish things and, and uh, um, like happened with RBS, for example. But the other key thing is it's suggesting is we need a bit more transparency on pay. They, they feel that pay is actually an issue that's been overblown and they're arguing that um, just a little bit more transparency here and there will help. Um, I think a lot of people will regard it as quite a disappointing report. A bit more transparency on pay. It doesn't really sound like the revolution in banking we were promised. No, and the government's been hiding behind this report all year. I mean, Alistair Darling has repeatedly said when challenged about pay, well, David Walker is looking at this, we're going to have a big report, etc., etc., some government ministers have been going much further. Lord Miners was suggesting that there should be naming and shaming. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he said that people above a certain level of pay in banks should should be named. Or Walker is, um, has has come up with a much more watered down version of that, saying that there should be banks should be forced to disclose pay bans, so they should be forced to say how many people are paid over a million pound within a bank. But he's chosen a very arbitrarily high number as well. I mean, over a million pounds. For some for David Walker, who's worked all his life in the city and used to run Morgan Stanley, this is a small sum of money, but to many people that's quite a high bar to start with. And it's turning into a bumper week for bankers. Yesterday the Supreme Court ruled that the Office of Fair Trading can't challenge bank charges, meaning that if you dip into the red you can still be charged up to thirty pounds a day. I asked some shoppers on the streets of London what they thought about that. Most people, sometime or another, have been charged by going overdrawn a, a few pounds and not even not even realising it. And like, um, depending when you get paid in the month, you, your money goes in on a certain day of the month, and maybe you might be without even knowing it a day overdrawn, and you get him charged thirty pounds. And how do you feel about that? Well, it's ridiculous, really, isn't it? It is. It is ridiculous, but what can you do? Your money has to go into an into a bow into a bank account, so they, you know. Okay, it's a minority that do go overdrawn and everything, but everybody else has to pay for the price. But uh, I don't think banks have any right at all. Um, yeah, you know, they just they just want to see their profits maximised at all times, you know, good or bad times. So, the, so the, the ruling has been that really it's fine for banks to charge people sort of £30 if they go overdrawn or for a, a bounce check. How, how do you feel about that? Well, I disagree to that. Simple. They shouldn't do it. And um, I think we are giving them enough business in terms of saving and uh, borrowing money from them. And I think the profit from those is enough. Why is it they want to charge you to keep your money? It's my money they're keeping and they're charging me. So I disagree to that. There's a suggestion that it might encourage people to stay in within the limits and it might promote a more responsible borrowing? Well, probably they make people a bit smarter, just like parking in attendance. You don't get a ticket because you get smarter, and it's the same thing with the banks. So they're just going to lose more anyway. So I don't use credit. So, you know, what I've got is what I've got. So I'm a bit old school, I suppose, but um, I think everybody should maybe start thinking, adapting that way. Don't let yourself get into that situation.
maybe. I know it's hard to say that, it's easy to say that, maybe, but um, yeah, I'm just... No, um, £30 is scandalous. If you're a person that goes overdrawn regularly, then you should make measures to, to sort out your finances. But if it's, for example, a one-off chart, you happen to go over by £5 or something, then I think the banks should make an exception. I think it depends on your relationship with your bank as well. I've had charges put against me in the past, which I've um, um, taken up with the bank and they've refunded them for me. So, but then I am a good bank customer, so I haven't gone overdrawn too much. So Joe, we've heard what ordinary people have to say. What does this mean for consumers generally? Well, to a certain extent, we've already started seeing the changes coming in. Banks are already restructuring how they charge for bank accounts. They're packaging insurance and credit cards and all sorts of things in with their bank accounts and charging a monthly fee for those. Now it's been suggested that what they might do is have a really basic account which has no overdraft facility or a me and a medium style account which has an overdraft but you pay £5 a month for and this third tier of packaged accounts which has lots of fripperies alongside it which you may or may not want. Is this sort of saying it's carte blanche for banks now to charge what they like? and um, tough if you're one of their customers and you accidentally well, they, slip into overdraft. They may feel like that, but I'm hoping that consumers will really make them earn their money and that they will they will shop around, they'll make sure they've got exactly what they need from the account, but that they're not paying any extra that they don't have to. It is a disappointing state to arrive at, Dan, isn't it, that this is the relationship we have with our banks now where we ha feel obliged to keep them on our toes or they will charge us a lot of money. I mean, considering the year that we've had that a lot of people would blame on bankers having got us into this situation, how, how is this the state we're at now? I, it's it flabbergasts me. I mean, even at the best of times, I think people would be very angry. The thing to remember is that banks have a unique relationship with, with our money and that they're able to dip in and out of it and help themselves to it in a way that no other service provider or business is, you know, in any other commercial transaction, if the, the person I'm dealing with decides that I've behaved in a way that they don't like, they may decide to charge me extra for their services. But I, I have to agree to that and I have to send them, a, send them a check or give them the money. The banks are uniquely able to simply help themselves to our money. And they've been doing so, setting arbitrary charges um, if you've gone overdrawn or you, or you bounce a check. They bear no relationship to the actual cost it, it, to them. So not only are they able to set the punishment at whatever level they are we're not allowed to to challenge it and uh, they've also been using it to make a lot of money i mean this has been a clear part of their business model all of these things seem to me to be entirely within the purview of an office of fair trading if that's if this isn't what an office of fair trading is there to to to, to look into i don't know what is there is some good news though from this ruling in that the office the office of fair trading has been told in court that it's being left open to it to go back to court to challenge the banks again over overdraft charges if they can find the right legislation to challenge. So really, we're just really hoping that the Office of Fair Trading will do exactly that and will maybe look at the competition situation because all of those charges that the banks were, were charging a couple of years ago were very similar. It does make you wonder. Jill Inslee and Dan Roberts, thanks very much. And you can read more about this at guardian.co.uk slash business. Elsewhere on the Guardian website today. I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, the Guardian's features section. In today's issue, Andy Beckett explores the darker depths of the internet beneath the fraction of websites most people know about. Peter Bradshaw explains why he thinks Woody Allen's casting of Carla Bruni is an inspired decision. And Judith McCrell meets royal ballet prima ballerina Tamara Rocco. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash G2.
The government has spent £12 million in the past three years on it, but there's no scientific evidence that homeopathy works. Yesterday, a committee of MPs gathered those who believe in homeopathic treatments and those who absolutely do not, and asked them to explain their positions. Science correspondent Ian Sample was watching. Well, essentially, the Science Committee has taken it upon themselves to have a look at all the evidence that underlies government policy, um, the scientific evidence. And so they're looking across the board, across government, to say, tell us what your policy is, and secondly, give us all the evidence you have that backs that policy up. They've taken written evidence before, and yesterday's session was all about uh, getting people in to talk about it. So they had scientists, they had representatives of the homeopathy community, uh, and they had some doctors as well. And uh, the discussion was a, li- a little livelier than we might expect from some of these committee hearings. It was. I mean, the opening question really was to all of these people, look, does homeopathy work beyond placebo? Now, homeopathy, people probably know, is when you take a substance and you dilute it to within you know, a millimetre of its life. And so there often aren't any molecules even left of the active ingredient in there. But you can still treat people with it. And the scientists say, well, look, there's nothing in it. How can this be any different to, to water? And some of the pills can be sugar pills and such like, uh, you know, and don't have any effect beyond placebo. It was interesting that this question was first put to a representative for Boots. And he said, look, although we stock this stuff and we certainly sell a lot of it, we have no evidence whatsoever that it works. And uh, the Guardian columnist Ben Goldacre was also uh, giving evidence, wasn't he? He was, yeah. I mean, Ben was uh, obviously made made quite a few points, but one of his was that he thought as, uh, you know, these pills, they may not make uh, do any harm in themselves, but uh, to individuals, there's not much in them that w- would be able to cause you any harm. But he did think that they discredited pharmacists. I think that they can have other harms. For example, uh, pharmacists selling uh, homeopathic sugar pills on the high street to patients and to the public, I think, is very harmful to the public reputation of pharmacists. The RPSGB describes pharmacists on the high street as being the scientist in the high street, and I think it's sad that the public are now having to realise that, in fact, what should be a trustworthy resource for information on healthcare is, in fact, somebody who is, as a business person, selling them sugar pills. Those who are arguing in favour of homeopathy, how were they defending the, the uh, practice? Well, there was the usual to and fro about, yes, there is evidence that they work, and then the scientists saying, no, there isn't evidence. And it all depends on what studies you look at and which studies you think are good and which studies you think are bad, and that debate will go on and on and on. But um, what what I did really enjoy was this question from um, Phil Willis, the chairman, to all of these people at the, commi- at the uh, session was, you know, does homeopathy work? One of the uh, the people there, Robert Wilson, who's the chair of the British Association of Homeopathic Manufacturers, started talking about how, um, you know, there's a long history of uh, homeopathy. It's been going on for 200 years, and uh, pointed he pointed out that it was very popular in France. Definitely we believe there is a strong case for the efficaciousness of homeopathic medicines. This is a, an industry that has been growing uh, strongly. It's been around for 200 years, and... I think it's worth showing that in France, it's a 400 million euro business. Germany, it's the same. In so Europe, it's prostitution? No, it's not prostitution. There, but there you is, mean to say it's right, does it? There's one, one question, which is why really does it matter whether the evidence is there or not? If some people believe that homeopathy works for them and they're happy to spend their money on the remedies, um, is it important really what the evidence is? 
It is important, actually. And I, I think this is a really fair question because you can say, look, if a consumer wants to go and buy a homeopathic treatment, uh, then why not? And that's the, that's the model that we operate under. That's why you can buy these things in boots and wherever else. And that's why our medicines regulator approves these things. Um, but there's the other question that if you walk into a pharmacist and you say, can you give me a homeopathy treatment that will help me for such and such a condition, you'll be offered something. Um, but you might have a serious condition. So you think you're treating yourself with something that has no active ingredient whatsoever. Your condition is, it might get better on its own, but the chances are it won't if it's serious. So you're delaying your treatment. And you're also, I mean, there's an ethical issue here that you're being kidded. If you aren't completely informed about, about these uh, substances, you're being kidded uh, about what you're, be, what you're buying. exhibition opens today at the Welcome Collection in London on the subject of identity, which features, among other things, one of the first ever transsexuals, the actor Fiona Shaw's brain, and a Big Brother diary room chair. The Guardian's Maeve Kennedy went along and cornered the Welcome Collection's Ken Arnold. This exhibition is about you and me and what makes us different and maybe what makes us similar. So it's about the idea of identity uh, and an exhibition, I suppose, that is like so much of what we do here, trying to investigate us from the outside in, but also from the inside out. The tension between what science tries to tell us we are and what we feel ourselves to be. It comes at a very interesting time in the whole debate on identity, when it looks as if identity cards, which now have their own SAR, might be scrapped with the change of government. Does it touch on the legal issues of identity? It does. So one of the rooms uh, touches on the topic of DNA and the use of DNA in all sorts of parts of our legal system, our criminal system, and that idea of placing science at the service of society and using scientific information to pin down who we are and then exposing that to, uh, to courts, to the police, is very much something that this exhibition looks at. It's very much rooted in real lives as well, from this fantastic Fiona Shaw, whose brain scan we can see, to um, the, one of the first most famous transsexuals, April Ashley. You've gone for real people rather than a big scientific look at the whole subject. Yeah, when we thought of putting on this exhibition about identity, uh, we almost gave up with the enormity of the subject. The only way to make it graspable, to make it meaningful, was to descend to real lives. And so we thought, let's just find eight individuals who have extraordinary things to tell us about their lives, but also shedding general light on big topics about what it means to be us and how we're looking for a sense of our own identity. And the Big Brother Diary Chair? Well, one room uh, which uses the figurehead of, of Samuel Pepys looks at this idea of keeping a diary as a way of recording ourselves for ourselves, but also that sense in which we never do it just for ourselves. We're, we're sharing our sense of ourselves and increasingly with the whole world these days. So the, the, the diary chair from Big Brother feels as though it's that moment of us being so obsessed with ourselves that we can't stop telling everybody else about who we are. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. The town of Workington in Cumbria has effectively been cut in two after last week's terrible floods washed away or damaged all but one of the bridges across the River Derwent. The Guardian's northern editor, Martin Wainwright, has been talking to people living on both sides of the divide about how they're carrying on with their lives. This is what was uh, one of the main links in Workington. 
Um, you'll probably hear there's a helicopter up above. And here's the Derwent rushing past the Carver Bridge, which is a beautiful old stone bridge, um, but doomed now. Um, if the river doesn't knock it down, uh, Cumbria County Council is going to have to take it down uh, and repair it or replace it. And from where I'm standing on the river bank, um, with the river rushing past, although it's well down now, all, all around me is flattened grass um, where the river was last week. And the whole far bank of the river has been gouged out by the water. You can see why they're worried about putting in Bailey bridges because they're, they're not sure how far they can trust the bank. Um, and there's no point in putting in the modern version of the Bailey Bridge uh, if the ends of it are then going to start collapsing with the weight of traffic that goes over. You know, here we are in North Workington and South Workington is just little more than 100 yards away. I can shout that there are guys in fluorescent jackets on the other bank and I can, uh, I'm waving at them now and I can shout at them. I'm with Graham Gaunt, who's in what I might call South Workington now, a couple of miles the other side of the Derwent. How long has it taken you to get around here? Uh, I've actually taken my car to Maryport for a service. I set off about nine o'clock this morning. I've left the car there. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Unbelievable. It's going to take years to correct, I would think. Do you, do you often come across the river? I mean, Quite often, yeah. My mate lives around the corner. I generally come to pick him up for work. And that's gone by the board? That's gone by the board. I'm going to work on my own and he's having to take the train. I'm in Northside Community Centre now and it's a real hubbub. Um, there's loads of volunteers here organising everything from uh, medical appointments, um, people who just want to come in and keep warm, have a cup of tea. And uh, there's a bank here too, um, first time they've had banking. I'll just uh, go through and see what I can uh, see. For people who have not been here so they can sort of get the picture, although, although we're not on an island here, um, we're, we're in a very small part of Workington that's been cut off from the main. And so, although if you've got a car, you could nip up to Maryport and do all this in the supermarket, um, there'll be a lot of people around here who just, you know, elderly people and they mums. Walk, they walk into town. They have their banks, their doctors, um, their supermarkets. The whole infrastructure has been cut off and the local buses and trains cannot cope. My, I live at the next village down the road, Flimby, and my son cannot get on the train to go to school in Workington and he's in year 11 and I'm worried about his GCSEs. And he went yesterday and he got put off the train. Because it was full? Because because he had a rucksack of spare clothing and his asthma inhalers in case he ended up on the wrong side of the bridge for um, so he could go to my mum's in Workington Town Centre to sleep and still get to school. And he was put off simply because it just it was packed, the train was packed. The guard said, your bag's too big, son, um, you're going to have to get off and he let a smaller boy on without a bag. Just clambering on board the train now, which is uh, luckily for me late because I've had to rush down from the school. How, how was your journey this morning, if I met? A long, you know, it took us from... Sorry. Well, it took uh, about half an hour, three quarters of an hour to, for a, a nine-minute ride on a train, like... Uh, yeah. so, Did you have a long walk at either end? Uh, no, luckily we got the train, uh, the bus from Seaton to um, Flimby, and then from Flimby we got the train to Workington, like... Uh, and is that that's going to be the pattern for as long as this carries yeah. on? Uh, well, luckily enough, they're uh, setting up a new uh, train stop just at um, Dunmail Park here, uh, yeah. so it's only a walk down the hill from that's me. Just, that's just to the north of, of, of the river, just yeah. where we are ah, now. Yeah. Ah, we're coming up to it now, Dunmail Park, yeah. And do you need to go across every day to work? Yeah, well, I haven't been in this week. This is the first time I've been across the river. The train's just slowing down now. To... Uh, Flimby. Flimby, next station stop.
so that's like a, a four minute journey by train but for so many people it's uh, a journey that's taken uh, an hour sometimes two hours um, because so many people want to make the crossing and in the morning the trains are just full Martin Wainwright reporting from Workington now she was one half of the Eurythmics but Annie Lennox is better known these days for her campaigning on poverty than her music the Guardian's Hannah Poole asked her about whether celebrities really helped when they got involved with charities. We've become a nation of, of wirists and exhibitionists. I mean, so predominantly with the advent of reality TV and Big Brother, and we're so fascinated by the sort of puerile details of particular in, individuals' lives, you know, whether they've got, had, a, had new hair extensions or whatever. It's incredible. And we're so fixated. It's like smoke and mirrors. It completely takes us away from the real truths of the world at large and the fact that so many billion people go to bed hungry at night, you know. And it's, it's, it's incredible to me. It's just mind-boggling that we can indulge ourselves in, the, in this kind of trash and at the same time a person's life because they're poor is meaningless and they're just they're just going to continue to die i mean you know generations wiped out as is the case in south africa and that you know as a human being uh, as a as an individual as a, as a mother as a person with a brain i see those things and i'm appalled by them and i'm trying in my own way to just contribute i think i'm a bit unusual in the sense that i I'm committed, and I think that what happens with celebrity is that they very often get involved with something, and you know it could be a bit of an ego boost for them. And I mean, but the thing is, at the end of the day, does it make a difference? You uh, earlier on this year, I think it was, you were quite critical of the church and in particular the Pope with regards to their views about HIV and AIDS. See, that's a, that that is a Chinese whisper. I wasn't critical of the church. There's no point in being critical of the church, any church. I mean. Churches are a network, and they're spread across the whole world. And churches, depending on their policy, can do fantastic work with people in the community. They know who those people are, and they can be really helpful. So I have no criticism of churches. What I have a criticism of, though, or a question, is why on earth would you have a policy where you say uh, that using a condom is, is, a, is, a, is a bad thing when this this virus is sexually transmitted. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it just flies in the, in the face of any kind of rationale thinking. And all the NGOs are working on trying to support the idea of safe sex practice. Why would you expose women who are so already abused, you know, and to, to not having safe sex or to be exposed to the virus? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to anybody, really, I, I think. I think uh, I'd really like to understand why they've got this policy. It just doesn't, it's just, it's just another insanity to me. Finally, I have to ask you a Eurythmics question. I have to ask you just the one, any chance of a comeback? I'm not really keen on comebacks, you know. I'm very into what I'm doing and I've enjoyed that. I mean, Eurythmics was an incredible thing and uh, in its own way, have me creating musical pieces and visual pieces and going on tour and just going through that whole process for a decade, you know, more or less. It's very intense, but when I look back on that work, I'm, I, I, feel, I feel very satisfied with it. But I'm not in that headspace now.
Annie Lennox speaking to Hannah Poole. That's all for today. Guardian Daily was produced by Phil Maynard and I'm Esther Adley. Thank you for listening.